you got the inside baseball from Steve. Uh, we uh, had about, you know, 48 hours notice, and so uh, Dana was very uh, gracious to include this second uh, scripture passage from 1 Corinthians that you guys get. You get the bookends of the sermon series that we did this summer. Uh, you got the first one from me, how God uh, brings us into confrontation, and if you remember it, it was by his grace and his faithfulness. Do you remember that? And now we're going to receive in this last sermon um, a review of a sorts. You know, you're going to see, oh, this is obviously what Bradley wrote for Christ the King Church Newton. But I'm going to give you a little bit of overview of what these first eight chapters had to do with. But then in this last part is, is these three verses in chapter eight. I want you to see that the ethic of Christian life the, that the Christian ethic, the way we live, the way be, we behave, the choices we make, the Apostle Paul wants us to learn are not rooted in knowledge, but rather they're rooted in love. So that's what we're about to receive. Inside all of that is the stuff that was read, the scripture passages that are before you. And I want to challenge you with something today. I want to challenge you to take that order of worship home because Matt and the others who shepherd you very cautiously and faithfully and prayerfully put that order of worship together this week. And God is going to speak through his word. It's either going to be through the three verses in 1 Corinthians 8, or it's going to be through Hosea or 2 Corinthians 6. But this is steeped in the word of God, and I would encourage you, ask the Lord, even as we come before him, Father, what are you saying to me and to us today? All right. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we again come before you and we ask that you would move in such a way as we hear your word preached, that you would move us to worship. Father, I pray for the women and the men of this congregation, for the children whose voices we have heard both singing and saying the Lord's Prayer. Um, Father, reciting the creeds and our confessions, we pray that to a child and to an adult, you would draw us into your presence and you would move us to pray. Father, um, we remember that tomorrow marks the anniversary of 9-11, and we, um, we may wonder why our hearts are even twisted inside us now. Father, many of these women and men, both who have connections and have lived long times in New York City, but who have also friends and loved ones, um, maybe even family members who were killed on that day. Father, we come before you and this veil of tears in which we live, this time of sadness, um, this beautiful world that we are often reminded is broken, we come to you and we ask you, um, would you work in our lives in such a way that we as individuals could be um, nodes of your kingdom reaching out into this world and offering healing and grace and compassion, Father, for, 
we praise you for your passage over and over, how you invite your people into the wilderness and how you remind us there uh, that you love us, that you know us, that you invite us to repent and you invite us to, to be forgiven. Father, I pray that even now we would draw near to you. Father, we praise you for Abigail, Elizabeth, Kerr. We praise you for her, um, her soul that is eternal. We praise you that this little infant created in your image, Father, um, who, has been, uh, who has been born into this covenant family. Father, we pray that there would not be a day where she does not know your love for her. And Father, we, we look forward to the day that this little one will be baptized right here. And Father, we praise you for the day with expectation when she will confess her faith and join the church and become a communing member of this body. Father, we ask that you would be with Matt and Sarah, that you would give them peace that passes understanding. Father, as we turn to your word, um, as these, um, your sheep, um, daughters and sons created in your image, men and women who are visiting, um, who are also created in your image, um, as we come to it, would we not experience the whiplash of new ideas, but would we rather receive from you the whispering, familiar voice of grace? Father, would we remember that you have dealt with us and the way that you deal with us is rooted in your love for us. Father, we pray that that would be abundantly clear and we pray that in the midst of that, what we would see is Jesus and seeing Jesus, that we together would be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory and that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We praise you for this morning and for what you're about to do and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 8 and those Bibles you've got. We're just going to look at these first few verses. And I want you to know that you haven't received any of the preaching that existed before uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, and now chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, we got the privilege at Christ the King Church Newton to sit in the preaching of that word this summer. And I want to tell you a little bit of what we have understood is, as a means of setting the table for you all. And then I just have one point. Don't worry, I'm not going to take hours and hours to get there. Um, but this is the review. I want you to know that as we've studied the book of Corinthians, and maybe some of you were encouraged after that time in June to actually look at Corinthians yourselves. But as we've studied this book of Corinthians, we have come to understand that their understanding of Christianity and their use of the truth of Christianity was as a means of personal significance to them. Um, it's how they began to differentiate themselves one from another. Um, they used it as, as a means by which they would act their personal rights out, their own personal freedoms, their own personal protection, their own personal identity. Um, if you want to know one thing that's true about Corinthian Christianity and what you would see if you studied these first seven chapters is that Corinthian Christianity is defined by a consumption of one's self. The idea of one's self being at the center of their lives and then applying some truths to Christianity to prop up this idea of oneself. And, and unfortunately, the Corinthian Christians, you remember we had talked about how important they were because of their location between Athens and between Rome as this, 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 
this isthmus through which so much of commerce and trade and knowledge and wisdom would pass that they took these secular ideas and they combined them with Christianity and their Christianity was warped. It was focused on self. They had an excessive interest in an administration of themselves. And that's what the Apostle Paul begins to uncover. And the necessity of that for these Corinthians, not just for the sake of the gospel as it would go forth in the first century, but for these Corinthians themselves. So how would you have seen that if you had studied with us? In chapters 1 through 4, you would have seen that the the Corinthians valued above anything else wisdom, they valued speech and rhetoric, and here they value knowledge. They believed that if they had wisdom and, and speech and rhetoric, logos and knowledge, that they would be supreme and above others. In the very beginning, we began to see that the Corinthian Christians were saying, look, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. And even in their congregation, they were divided over those that they most respected, that they most identified with, of their wisdom, their rhetoric, and their knowledge, right? And that that identity on those secular principles as being the basis on how they found importance in people caused great divisions in the church. There were judgments against the Apostle Paul is what we saw in in those first four chapters. In fact, the Apostle Paul might have been the first victim that we know of of canceling in all of culture. The Apostle Paul was being canceled by these Corinthians. He was the one that they were saying, look, we want nothing to do with you. We don't believe that you are the one who is going to bring to us the wisdom, the rhetoric, and the knowledge that we need. They grew in their arrogance, and in their arrogance, their pride began to grow. After the fourth chapter, we see over and over that the Apostle Paul brings up this idea of being puffed up, of their hearts swelling as they were, of their hearts being so sensitive to anyone's, um, 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 to anyone's critique, to anyone's, um, uh, how do you say it, to anyone's criticism that they were so impacted by that swelling and that puffing up that they began to live out of a life of arrogance. They were not able to be touched by the truths of the gospel. Chapter 5 reminds us that that arrogance that was present in the Corinthians allowed them to accept some sexual immorality that the Apostle Paul says even the culture around you refuses to accept this, but you all are accepting it. And it's because they thought, hey, we know the difference between body and soul. Our souls are going to live forever, but these bodies, they're just going to die and go away, so we'll do anything we want with our bodies. But the Apostle Paul says, you do not get it. You don't get it. One of the things that shocked us the most about Corinthians is how forceful the Apostle Paul is. I'd always thought that Galatians was one of Paul's letters where he most forcefully imposed the gospel or, or spoke of the gospel and critiqued the Galatian Christians, but Corinthians is above that. It's amazing. He uses, he uses irony. He uses sarcasm. He uses tone of voice. He uses expression to go after them. Because in verse chapter 6, we see that the Corinthians' focus was on what can I get for myself here and now? The Apostle Paul showed them that. He said, look, you would rather defeat your friends in the court of law than take an offense for the good sake of, or for the sake of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul said, look, you're living for yourself and for the here and now. And then we see him 
or we see him attack the Corinthians' idea that knowledge is what's going to set them free. There was another quote that we see in the first part of chapter 7. He says, all things are lawful for me. If you go back and look in chapter 7, it's in quotes. And the reason being is that the Apostle Paul makes it clear, very clear that he's quoting the Corinthians. And he says to them, listen, you're saying all things are lawful for you, but you mean that to the end of personal freedom and experience. Today, he's going to pull up some other quotes, and that's why I want you to look at these verses in, ver in chapter 8. But the Corinthian Christianity was about self. It was about protection and identity. It was about independence and freedom. And I want to ask you a question. This is my question for you. When and around what issues are we most tempted to practice Corinthian Christianity? A Christianity that, that protects ourselves, that, that, that emphasizes our own freedoms, our own liberties, that emphasizes our own rights over others, that emphasizes that knowledge is what is most important. When and around what issues are we most tempted to practice Corinthian Christianity? As I searched my heart with regard to this, I began to see last week that it's usually when I'm filled with fear that I begin to practice Corinthian Christianity. When I'm hurt, when I'm grasping for control, or when I'm focused on the here and now. Those are the times that I begin to be overwhelmed with myself. We use this word narcissism all the time. I don't really know what it means. It's, it's such a broad term. But it's this over, this over-exaggerated focus on self, right? And I see that in my own life. Do you want to know when I'm surprised when I also see it? When I'm satisfied in this life. When I'm just looking around going, I've got everything I want. What more do I want? Sounds like David looking over the kingdom when he sees Bathsheba bathing, right? Or it's whenever my own personal liberty is at stake. I think this is important for us to think about as Christians in our culture today, in this 21st century, when we as Christians, our influence is waning and persecution seems to be knocking at the door. And we plead our rights, and, and there's not wrong. We all know what the Declaration of Independence of our country says, right? That we all have the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. This idea of Corinthian Christianity and Paul's attempt to correct them in these verses really brings to challenge this idea. Is Christianity simply about our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or is there something more foundational to the Christian ethic? And the Apostle Paul gets here in these verses in chapter 8, and now I want you to see this one thing that the Apostle Paul is telling us in chapter 8. This final rebuke for us right now of, the Corinthian, of Corinthian Christianity and listen, I'm not going to get into this idea of food sacrifice to idols. Do you want to know why? Because the Apostle Paul is going to spend three chapters on it. Three chapters. And I would be foolish to think that I could settle this conversation for you in three minutes, right? 
um, and to help you understand it. But the next three chapters, chapters 8, chapters 9, and chapters 10, all have to do with food sacrifice to idols and probably more specifically of Christians going to temples of other gods and participating in their feasts because that's really where they would get meat. You and I are so far from understanding this. The weirdest thing that I know about meat is what my son does at college. Do you know that at college at Auburn, they have what's called a meat lab because part of their stuff is an ag school. And so they do all this, you know, I guess experimentation and they teach kids how to butcher and all this kind of stuff. You can go to the meat lab and my son loves to brag that you can get 50% off your meat at the meat lab. And me and I are like, what? You go to the meat lab and you get 50% off meat? What in the world? Well, for us, us to understand this, you know, all we have to do is go to Market Basket, right? And at Market Basket, you can get any kind of protein that you want, but not so much here. The times that they would find their meat would be meat that is sacrificed to idols, meat that they would find in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols or going to festivals. But the Apostle Paul is using this concept for this one point that he's going to give them. And this is a good point for you and me to listen to as we enter into this fall, maybe even as we enter into this season of being Christians in a world where our influence and where our power probably seems to be waning. And it's simply this that the Apostle Paul says, the Christian ethic, how we behave and live and make choices, isn't rooted in knowledge but is rooted in love. I want to say it one more time so it's clear. The Christian ethic, how we as Christians choose to behave, to live, and to make choices, isn't rooted in knowledge, but rather it's rooted in love. The Apostle Paul is picking on the Corinthians in the very first verse. He says with them, he says, we know and we agree with you that all of us possess knowledge. You see in your Bibles right there, all of us possess knowledge is in quotations. The Corinthians have written a letter to Paul and they said, look, there's nothing wrong with eating of idols. We all possess knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing, and we know that the worship of idol is empty. So, you know, we all possess that knowledge, and the the Corinthians are just simply arguing, we can eat whatever we want to eat, because we know an idol is nothing. But more than anything, they are saying to the Apostle Paul, we all possess knowledge. We have knowledge, and we're acting on that knowledge. Along with wisdom and rhetoric, These are in words for the Corinthians. Knowledge, wisdom, rhetoric, speech, argumentation. We want to be with the people who demonstrate the most power there, don't we? Just like the Corinthians. But here, Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 1, listen, it's this knowledge, again in quotations, that puffs up. It's this knowledge that makes You, Corinthian Christians, arrogant is what the Apostle Paul says. He hasn't just used puffed up here. He's used puffed up three or four times already. And so he is poking at something. He's poking the bear, right? He's getting after something. He's saying, listen, it's this knowledge that puffs up, but I want you to know it's love that builds up. Now, he uses this phrase, builds up, because it's likely that the Corinthians have said, Hey, look, if if these weaker Christians would understand that idols are nothing, their faith and their courage would be built up and they could eat this meat and they could go into these temples and they could do all this stuff. 
But the Apostle Paul turns their logic on themselves again in a very overt and offensive way. And I mean offensive. The Apostle Paul is going on the offensive with the Christians. He says, this knowledge of yours puffs you up, but love builds up. Knowledge that's focused on self. We possess knowledge. I have knowledge. The Apostle Paul says it's love that is focusing on the other that actually builds up. That's the first. The second is in verse 2. Listen to what he says in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What is the Apostle Paul saying there? The Apostle Paul is saying this. Anyone who claims to have perfect knowledge, and that's what they're saying. They're not saying, hey, we just know something like we, we know a little bit of math. They're saying, no, we know it all. We, we've got this one conquered. We don't have any questions. We know infallibly. They actually use in their original language, language that would say, we know it all. And because we possess it all, they're going to argue that they have this personal freedom to do this. But the Apostle Paul says, the very fact that you, Corinthian Christians, in your arrogance would say that you possess perfect knowledge is proof that you don't know correctly yet at all. That's what verse 2 is saying. He's saying that you haven't been shaped by that thing that you understand. You, you don't really understand what freedom is for. Listen, there's very little in my life that is cool. And Mita and I were with 25 junior high and senior high kids last night. And she texted one of our friends and she said, look, after 25 years, Mita and I, Bradley and I seem to be doing the same things that we were doing 25 years ago. And she was exactly right. Uh, but my sons keep us cool. Our children keep us cool. My daughter keeps us cool. And my son forwarded me a podcast by this guy named Joe Rogan. Do you guys know who Joe Rogan is, the Joe Rogan experience? I don't know much about it, and I, I can't reference many things by him. He is certainly a secular guy, I believe. Um, but my son heard this interview with this guy named Steve Myers, who is a Ph.D. in the, in, in the philosophy of science. And he was arguing for intelligent design. Now, the, the illustration I'm going to give you doesn't depend on your view of intelligent design or not. But this guy named Steve Myers wrote this book called Darwin's Doubt. And in it, he attacks scientifically and what we are discovering scientifically about the world in which we live to cast real doubt on the concept. Uh, that this world came about by Big Bang. It's a pretty powerful conversation. It's a really neat argument. And the majority of it is way over my head. And I loved listening to it. But do you know what stood out to me more than anything else? In this conversation, Joe Rogan time and time again challenged uh, Steve Meyer. And he said, yeah, but isn't it possible that we're going to learn something in the future that's going to undo everything that we believe now? Isn't that possible? Isn't that possible? And in the midst of this conversation where he is bringing example and an example and an example into the dialogue about proof in scientific terms of intelligent design, Stephen Meyer, in great humility and kindness and compassion, you know, was speaking to Joe Rogan. I said, looked at him, but I don't know because I wasn't watching the video, right? He, he responds to Joe Rogan. He goes, yeah, it's certainly possible. Our knowledge is incomplete as human beings. 
but I want you to know everything points this way. And just to hear his humility stood out to me. I thought, man, that's powerful. That's powerful. Apart from his argumentation, the humility is there, and it stands in stark contrast with the way these Corinthian Christians were thinking about their claim of knowing things perfectly. But finally, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What does he mean here? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Well, we have laughed this semester as we have gone through this summer as we've gone through the book of Corinthians because the book of Corinthians is hard. It's hard in a lot of ways because the Apostle Paul references letters that we don't have. <laughs> we don't have the letters that the Corinthians wrote the Apostle Paul, so we have to deduce what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Not only that, but this is one place in your New Testament where the translation of a verse really matters, and it's hard. Now, I want you to remember that we have over 5,700 manuscript evidences of the New Testament. Did you know that? Parts and fragments of the New Testament, over 5,700 that come from the first and the second and the third centuries. This is just an incredible wealth of manuscript evidence for the New Testament. And in and across that evidence, did you know that almost over 99% over of it is the same? And the majority of the variants have very little to do with changing the meaning of a verse or anything like that. But this happens to be one of those verses that scholars really wonder, what is the Apostle Paul saying? This is one of those, and I want you to look at it with me. One option is that we see exactly what it says here. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. How do we understand that? This first option is this, that loving, loving is a result of God's initial action in our lives, right? And any of us who are familiar with Scripture go, yes, I believe that. That is true. And, and, and it is true that while we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, God, because of his great mercy, made us alive in Christ, right? That God's action results in any action that we would do. God's action is prior. And the commentators go, that is certainly true. It's certainly a Pauline message. But it's unclear as to why he would be saying that here. Another way of understanding what the Apostle Paul means in this verse, and again, look at it, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God, is this second option, that our loving of God first and of others next, because the Apostle Paul is talking not about loving God, but about loving each other, right? That's what, is, that's what this discussion is about in chapter 8. He says that if our loving of God and others is a result of our truly knowing that God knows us and that our loving proves that we know that God knows us. Now again, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That we know that we are known by him. When you have the confidence that you are known by somebody, when you have the confidence that you are known and that knowledge of being known settles your heart. Aren't we much more likely to respond in love just by knowing that we are known? And this is very true. But there are two manuscripts 
both of which come out of the second century. And two manuscripts that are really important in our understanding of what the New Testament says that we lean on very, very heavily. And both of those manuscripts read this verse in this way. They both say, if anyone loves, this one knows. It's that simple. If anyone loves, this one knows. And so the scholars are like, what do we do with this verse? And as one commentator that I read this last few weeks and have been reading all semester in the book of Corinthians, this commentator says, if that's not the original reading, the easiest reading, if anyone loves, this one knows. Remember, knows correctly. We just saw that in in, in verse 2. If anyone loves, this one knows. If that's not the original reading, it is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. Our loving as the root of our Christian ethic proves our knowledge and that our knowledge has been brought in and processed correctly. That this idea that Christian ethic is rooted in love is a love that builds up, that is focused on constructing, not destructing, but is focused on constructing others and to something specific, constructing and building us up to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is going to say in the 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that, look, as we gaze upon Christ as his body, we are changed into his image and with ever-increasing glory. Remember, the argument is that Christian ethics is rooted in love. How do we know this? Because the scripture teaches this. What did God say before he gave the Ten Commandments to his people? This law that they should know how to behave. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you. I rescued you, not because you were great and mighty, but because I loved you. I set my affection upon you, and therefore I acted. God's action toward us is rooted in love. You read the same thing in the New Testament, don't we? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave, that he acted. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but should inherit eternal life. The Apostle Paul is after Corinthian Christianity that uses wisdom, rhetoric, and words, and and knowledge to tear each other down, to divide, to build up self. And the Apostle Paul says, Corinthians, the Christian ethic, how we behave, how we live, and how we make choices, it isn't rooted in knowledge, but in love. Here's the question I want to end with. I'm ending right here. Where am I tempted by spiritual knowledge 
Where am I tempted? Where are we tempted by spiritual knowledge to emphasize freedom and authority and liberty in our lives? Come on, we already talked about Minuteman preachers. We are in Concord, right? We, we, we understand the, the, the defining characteristics of, of our culture. Where am I tempted by spiritual knowledge to emphasize freedom, authority, and liberty over love for our sisters and our brothers? Let me give you one example. Listen, it is a good and right thing to know as Reformed Christians that all of God's gifts in this world are good gifts. They're all good gifts. That is a good theological thing to know and to be aware of, that all of God's gifts in this world are good gifts. And that, listen, if we possess those gifts, we're free to pursue the pleasures that those gifts afford us. That that is a good thing to know. That is a good thing to know. But I just have one question of how we use that knowledge. How do we spend our leisure How do we spend our luxuries? How do we spend our licenses, the freedoms that we have, in such a way that we ask ourselves, how will this affect my sisters and my brothers with whom I'm connected and related to? Have you ever thought about that? You go, wait, it's my vacation. My time off is my time. And the Apostle Paul would go, you know, it is, it is a leisure to have time off. Have you asked yourself the question, how I use this? Will, how will it affect my brothers and sisters? How will that affect them? The luxuries that we have. Do we think about how we spend our money and how it will affect our sisters and our brothers with whom we're connected? Because the Corinthians are saying, look, I've got knowledge. And if these weak people can't handle it, we're going ahead and they just need to be built up in strength. But the Apostle Paul is saying, look, the Christian ethic is based and rooted in love. Finally, what about our licenses? Look, everybody that likes to drink alcohol loves to point to the Psalms and said, you know, God is the one that gave us wine. It's such a good gift. Do we think anymore about how our practice of the freedoms that we have affect our sisters and our brothers who have stories of their own, who have struggles of their own, who have paths of their own? And you go, Bradley, if I start thinking about that, I'm going to be frozen. I'm not going to be able to act in any way, shape, or form. And I would say that the Apostle Paul is saying, look at the sisters and the brothers who are in this room who you're connected with. I'm not worried how the sisters and the brothers first and foremost in Newton are going to consider what your freedoms are. I'm worried about how you're loving each other because you know in chapter 7 and on chapter 11 he's going to go to the Lord's Supper. You guys know this. We read chapter 11 at the Lord's Supper nearly every time we have the Lord's Supper. The question is, in this room, with you guys connected to each other, Do we understand that the Christian ethic, how we behave and live, the choices that we make, is rooted not in knowledge, not in what we know, but in love? So the Apostle Paul is going to say, you'll prove that you know something by how you love. I think this is a lot to chew on. I want to encourage us to chew on it together. 
I want us to encourage us to consider how God rooted his action toward us in that love and how he calls us to love each other similarly. Will you pray with me as we come to the Lord's Supper? Father, I thank you that you have given us these passages and, and, and really difficult passages. Father, that if we were left just to the wisdom of human beings, we might be in such a place that we go, I don't know if I can have any confidence in what something says, but Holy Spirit, we know uh, that, the, that the interpreter of your word is your word and that the interpreter uh, of your word in our hearts is you, Holy Spirit. Um, you are the one who takes your word and plants the seeds of your word into our heart and bears the fruit of the Spirit there. And you have defined for us clearly what that fruit is. And the very first one is love. Father, I pray for the women and the men of Redeemer Conquered that you would be with my sisters and my brothers and that you would encourage them and that the way that they behave and live and make choices would be rooted not first and foremost in knowledge, but in love, in seeking to build one another up, and that it would even challenge some of the ways that we have acted as if we have some sort of freedom that sets us free from loving each other. Father, we praise you that you have loved us in this way, and we ask that as we come to the table um, that you would use your supper to feed our faith. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are at work. Help us to see that you have loved us this way in sending your son. And Lord Jesus, as you gave your disciples this Lord's Supper, and you said, come here and eat that your faith might be fed, that we as your daughters and sons would run to your table and we would feast at this banquet. And we would remember that one day, Jesus, we will feast with you. Set us free to love one another deeply from the heart, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.